0: Hi, this is Dave Fiore. First, thanks for listening. Doing these podcasts is a privilege, and I'm thankful that these amazing stories are being heard. I'm also grateful to be part of a local podcast community. To help promote Tallahassee area podcasts, we've created the Tallahassee Podcast Network, a Facebook page that highlights new episodes from local podcasts every week. You can follow that page for the latest updates and support local creators. We've also created a Facebook group called Tallahassee Pod People that provides a platform to share your favorite podcasts, ask questions, and share insights on your favorite shows. It's a public group, and I hope you join us there now on to this episode of how I got here
1: Don't worry about your kid being pulled off of the sidewalk or parking lot at you know at the movies. Think about. That trafficker who's coming into your kid's smartphone or, you know, online gaming system, because that's where the that's where the grooming is starting. That's where they're befriending them and building trust. And so more often it's uh, people are trafficked by people they know and they've built relationships with.
0: At Communications, it's How I Got Here, a show of inspiring stories from Tallahassee area leaders, business owners, and neighbors, all the challenges, opportunities, inspirations, the twists and turns of life that led them to where they are today. Everyone has a story worth telling, and I am really grateful that we get to bring a few of them to you. I truly have been changed by my conversations with these amazing people, and I'm confident you will be too. I'm Dave Fiore, and in this episode, I speak with Robin Hassler-Thompson, the Executive Director of the Survive and Thrive Advocacy Center. STAC provides direct support for victims of human trafficking and focuses on community education. Robin says she has always loved learning, but when she got bored with high school in 1976, she jumped into politics, not running for class president, but as a volunteer chair for Jimmy Carter's successful presidential campaign. She attended college in Washington, D.C., and went on to summer school at Oxford before landing in Tallahassee for a program that combined a master's in international affairs and a law degree. Her love of politics led her to the Florida House, the governor's office, and eventually on a State Department trip to Bangladesh that would change her life. Robin has spent much of her career focused on human rights, specifically violence against women and human trafficking, and says, I am doing what I'm supposed to be doing. We started our conversation talking about growing up in South Florida.
1: I was there until I went to college, actually. So yes, I was born in South Florida, actually in Hialeah, which is just in Dade County, just south of there. And uh, then, yes, went to elementary, middle school, high school. I loved it. There was always the beach. My family was a the big beach family and big picnic family. So being outdoors and all the time was wonderful. So that was uh, that was fun, and I really had a, a childhood that had a lot going on all the time. I was I was uh, thankfully one of those kids that could kind of self entertain. So I was a big reader. I used to play some tennis and some sports, and uh, yeah, I I think back to that time and I just think, you know. Lots of stuff always going on. Both my parents worked, had a kind of a big family. Yeah, well,
0: tell me about that. What did, what did your parents do?
1: Well, my dad was an insurance salesman, and my mom worked as a secretary, or as we call them now, administrative assistants. <laughs> right. And so um, so that was that was their profession. I'm actually, uh, I think about it now, they were very hard workers, um, both with high school degrees, essentially, so I'm, I'm actually the first person in my family to go to College, get a higher education degree, right. and um, and so we were just kind of a there making it, you know, solid middle class uh, family. Okay, and you have siblings. I do. I have a younger brother, and I have um, two older stepsisters, one older uh, stepbrother who is deceased.
0: Okay. And were you close growing up? Were you a little posse together, or what What was that dynamic like?
1: Well, ours was a yours, mine, and ours family, if okay. you know that phrase. Yeah. So when my mom, my biological mother, married my uh, uh, father, my stepfather, he had three kids, and then together they had my little brother. So... We were all over the place. And right now, you know, they call it a blended family. But it wasn't always easy at all, if you can think about that. And I <laughs> I, I know how it impacted me later in my life because I didn't date anybody who had kids. It really? was going to be one of those times where I saw, gosh, this is a big struggle. It was a lot for for my parents. I know they did everything they did the way they needed to do it, the way they could, the best they could. Mm-hmm. And uh, But it was still really hard. Different religions merged, different Families merged, you know, and people were working trying to make it.
0: Right. Hmm. So that kind of shaped your... Your view of family moving forward.
1: Absolutely. Well, doesn't it always? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so you said you played tennis and sports. <laughs> so <laughs> what? What? What other sports did you play?
1: Well, you know, it was one of those things where uh, mostly racket sports. I would say um, paddleball, anything. You know, my mom was one of those. I think about kids now, and it just makes me scratch my head because. Even in the summer when um, we were kids, my mom would always say, just go out and play, you know? <laughs> and we had a, a, a elementary school and a big recreation center that was kind of across and down the street. So we were there all the time. So... Ping pong I mean, I they always whatever it was, I seemed right. to like those kinds of sports. And of course there was swimming and um, and all of that. So, you know, she wasn't a mom who locked the door so we couldn't get back in, but she basically said, Go out and play and, you know, come back for lunch or here's your lunch money, whatever it is. Right. So um, so that was that was a lot of, of uh, that was a lot of what I remember outside in terms of just being always very active.
0: Yeah. All right. So you're in high school. What were those years like? Were you in clubs or have other interests or what were those good years? Kind of high school for people is either like a peak time or a struggle time. What was high school like for you?
1: Oh, high school. I think about high school. I think about both. I think about peak and struggle. So I went to a Catholic high school. Before that, I was in public school the whole time. Loved school, loved learning, mm-hmm. Um, and so I went to St. Thomas Aquinas High School in Fort oh. Lauderdale and, uh, Chrissy Everett went there, <laughs> Brian Piccolo before then. So right. it has, uh, this like, you know,
0: huge football tradition, huge, yeah. huge,
1: which I hate to confess this, but even living in Tallahassee, football's not one of my things at all. Never has been. And there, you know, there I am both at St. Thomas right? Yeah. yeah. So, um, so I loved it. I, uh, I just... I I really loved the part of being in school um, in terms of the learning, the environment. I had some really close friends, but I also started to get pretty bored. Mm -hmm. And um, those were the years when, I have to tell you, my mom has been a huge influence in my life. And one of the things that she gave me all the time was this love of politics. So when I started to get, um, you know, just things weren't – I was in some things. I was in like the Latin club, so you can – just take from that what you will, <laughs> the total nerding out of, right. of Robin. Um, but I, uh, I, I was on the uh, – I joined the Jimmy Carter's campaign when I was uh, – 1976 when he was coming through Florida. Um, my mom knew somebody who was the Broward County chair. So she said, my daughter's in high school. She doesn't know what to do and she wants to do something. Hmm. And that was when it was a horse race at that time. There were nine or more people running on the Democratic side for right. president. And so really, w- so anyway, so I did that. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. You know, March 9th primary, I'll never forget it. I was involved. I actually met him at one point and, and worked. And I was the Broward County chairperson for the um, little volunteer group we had. Wow. As a high school. As in high school. Yeah, yeah, as in high school. So, so that was huge. And I made wonderful friends and had a very exciting time. So the high school part sort of faded away toward the end, at least my senior year. And I, then, you know, he won, and I got invited to the inauguration. I actually went to the inaugural. Wow. hmm I still remember that the dress. very cool. I still remember hearing Aretha Franklin sing <laughs> Respect at the Florida Ball, whatever. Yeah. And uh, so it was terrific, and it inspired me to uh, go to school in Washington, actually.
0: Yeah. So w- what was it about politics that intrigued you and got you so motivated?
1: What was it? I would say— Almost a sense of you have a responsibility and a duty to make the world a better – it sounds so corny – to make the world a better place.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I know. But But
1: that's really kind of what it was all about. Plus, it was exciting. You know, I I look at it now and I I see politics even now as toxic as it has gotten. Um, I feel myself thinking about politics like people can think about sports, you Mm. know, statistics, people running, whatever. And it's just really interesting to me. Yeah.
0: All right. So as you mentioned, you did end up going to college at American University in Washington. I did. Right. So why that school and why you just wanted to be near the action politically or what was your thought process there?
1: Part of it was I was really ready to get out of Florida. I was really ready to be um, in another city, another state. I wanted to explore. And I had gone to Washington and really loved just the Mm -hmm. whole scene. Uh, Then I applied to several schools. One of my good friends was um, a Notre Dame fan and not at all to say anything about Notre Dame, but I already told you that I'm not a football person. And so we went to tour a couple of schools and I did go to Notre Dame and it was the weekend of the, I'll never forget this too, at the Alabama football game. And I just... Didn't care. Mm-mm. <laughs> you know, I didn't. And you know...
0: Not a fan of Touchdown Jesus.
1: Touchdown Jesus. saw <laughs> Touchdown Jesus. I, um, I realized that Wow, that school has a lot of passion about football, which right. didn't ring my bell. So but uh, coming from
0: a Catholic high school, that's a popular mm-hmm, destination. Yeah.
1: Man. Yeah, very popular. I mean it was almost like the pinnacle of what you could do. Right, right. So I did apply to American in Georgetown and I needed to have student aid and scholarships. So American did that and Georgetown welcomed me but said, You're on your own, honey. So um so I picked American, yeah.
0: And what did you study there?
1: What a surprise. I studied political science, okay. and I studied literature, and I loved it. Yeah. I just really, it was a very exciting time for me.
0: Right. And during that time, you're, I guess after your freshman year, you went to Oxford for a summer?
1: Well, this was actually my senior year. Um, I was the uh, one of the first people to apply for a Rhodes Scholarship from my university. Okay. So I did that. And I only got into the semifinals, so I got into the, the top level for Florida, and then I didn't get to the next level, into the finals. And uh, to do that, it was a big slog, you know, it's a big process, and I was navigating that with the help of several professors. And one of them, and actually I remember her name, uh, Roberta Rubenstein, she just said, I know you didn't get the roads, and she had written support letters and things like that. So I know you didn't get that, but here's something called the International Graduate Summer School. And so why don't you apply to that? And I did, and I got a scholarship. So I spent the summer between uh, undergraduate and law school. I I spent that at Oxford.
0: And what was that experience like? How did that change Mm -hmm. your worldview or your thought process?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's such a good question. I think about that, and I think I remember walking down the streets of Oxford and realizing that was my first time I've ever been out of the country. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so I was I remember walking down the street one day and thinking everybody in this place, which was very different from Fort Lauderdale, Florida <laughs> yeah. and Washington as well, but everybody here seems to have so much in common with people and myself that I've known all my life. So the idea was everybody wants to be happy, wants to have a, a strong family life, wants their kids to grow up in a healthy environment, you know, loves, loves – food, loves to, play. I mean, it was just, I had so much more in common with people in a foreign country than I thought that maybe I would, Right. but it really made me see how, how connected we are, how, you know, how we're all in the same boat. And right. I, I thought that was powerful.
0: Yeah. All right. Then, so you, you finish up in Washington and you, then you had the experience between, after you finished at American is when you went to England. Right. right? And then you came to Florida State for yes. your master. So, how did you end up in Tallahassee?
1: Well, I actually, um, okay, so that was another series of applying. So, at the end of my undergraduate years, I was mentored by a wonderful woman named Betty Mur- Betty Southard Murphy, and she was on the National Labor Relations Board. And I was trying to figure out what to do. She was a lawyer, very, very powerful, wonderful lawyer in Washington. And I remember talking to her about my career choices going forward as a, you know, as a senior and she said – and I, I, was, I was so interested in international affairs, travel, diplomacy and the like and so what I did was I talked to her about should I – what should I do? I'm thinking about applying to Tufts to get my master's in law and diplomacy Um, Or should I go to law school? And I'll never forget what she said. She said, young woman, (laughs) there are people selling books at the DuPont Circle Bookstore who have their – oh anyway, who have their master's in law and diplomacy. Go to law school. Go to law school. So that's what I did. I actually applied to FSU Law. Okay. And got into FSU. And um, the reason I went, it was – in the capital city, so I could maintain that sort of being close to the right. um, that, and also because it was in-state tuition, mm. and it was very affordable. I, I think now, gosh, you know, it was five hundred bucks to go to law school my first semester, all mm. the tuition. Wow, one even then though one course at AU was five hundred, so I can't even imagine now how 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 students do it. And so um, so when I was at law school, that's when I decided to. To get a double major and get a master's as well in law, and I'm sorry it will it would have been law and or it was in um, international studies and in law.
0: It wasn't a sequential thing; you were doing both of them at the same time. That's right. So That's I've right. never I don't know that I've ever heard of a double major master's plus JD at the same time.
1: It's a joint degree program, okay. and I think I sort of I know that other students had done that at FSU, but I was getting. Uh, <sighs> I wasn't really thrilled with law school. I wasn't really happy there. And I needed other kind of stimulation, I guess. So I wanted to get uh, a joint degree. I figured, I'm here. I want to learn more. I want to do more things. FSU has this whole other campus that's just down the street from the law school that you never get a chance to see if you go to law school.
0: Yeah, it is separate. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so it was really one of those things where I was – I just wanted more, and so I did that.
0: Well, I don't know that a lot of law students are looking for more to add more to their plates. <laughs> you, you definitely, uh, definitely had a, a big capacity for learning, I guess, at, at that time.
1: Either extremely that, or what type A personality. But it was just <laughs> I, I was ready to go, you yeah. know. And it was exciting to be here. I learned so much, and I loved it. And I worked at the legislature. I was an intern. I worked at the, uh, clerked at the Supreme Court during law school and loved that for a semester and really took advantage of a lot of the, just what this this town is about on the education side.
0: And this was early 80s, mid 80s? This this was in
1: 1984. So I graduated in 1984 with both degrees. Okay.
0: Did you have a career plan at that point? You're done with school. Did you have an idea of where you wanted to go from there?
1: Well, I had this uh, sense that I wanted to be definitely be a lawyer um, and didn't know exactly where to land on that. I still was very interested in public policy and politics and all that. At the same time, I realized I wanted to you know, forge my way in the world, however that would pan out. And so during my legislative uh, you know, work, I came across people who were lobbying all the time and And I had a very, again, a a wonderful set of mentors when I was in the legislature, and one of them was a staff director. I was in the Commerce Committee working, and uh, uh, one of the lawyers who lobbied there um, was asking him about hiring associates, and I interviewed, and they offered me a job. So Mm. I had a job through that uh, to go back to uh, South Florida, and and that was practicing law in Miami for two years. Okay.
0: Okay. I've noticed kind of a common theme of mentors through your life and people who have influenced you is that. Tell me about the importance of that and how that has impacted the direction of your career.
1: I, uh, ooh, yeah, I'm thinking about that now too. I haven't really, this is the first time I've ever really noticed how there've been these sort of people who've come in and just sort of guided. There's this Zen saying that's um, polish your path. You know, you mm-hmm. go forward. I am i haven't really thought about things Plotting things out way into the future, I've I've kind of tried to figure out what, or or just realized what was going on now and how to do the best there or how to be the happiest or to just take advantage of or whatever the right. the thing is to polish your path, and yeah, there have been people there and it I, I think it happens with a lot of folks though. I mean, you meet somebody or someone opens a door, and you can decide to walk through or not and what what happens next kind of thing. But for me, that's that's how that unfolded, and it yeah. was a time too. I'd, I really have to say, you know, I'd interviewed at um, the law school, and one of the things that I know, <laughs> I re- I remember this as well. There was a big Miami law firm that was interviewing, and I asked them what was their policy on. Uh, maternity leave or at that point I'm a young woman I don't know if, what I'm going to do if I'm going to get married or not and yeah. he looked at me and he goes like I don't I don't know that we've ever had that come up and that's when I knew at that point and mm. right now I know I can see from your face you're saying how could anybody not have a policy like that it seems or even absurd or thought
0: about it yeah
1: clearly and that was that was so clearly a litmus test for me that they had no clue about what they would do with a woman who got pregnant while they were working for her. And and if they had no path on that, what else, what other kinds of discrimination or, you know, willful or other kinds of ignorance that they have about what it's like to be a woman in that firm, for example, in that firm environment. So I think that there were things that motivated me about those ideas of fairness and, and you know, just, just being around people who were kind of like-minded or wanted to do the right thing or wanted to go forward and and be treated fairly. So that sort of started to resonate with me now that I'm thinking about that.
0: Yeah, which would, of course, be a common theme of your your work for the rest <laughs> of your time here. So you're at the law firm in Miami, and then at some point you end up back at the governor's office. Is that right?
1: First, um, back to the House, so back okay. into the legislature. So yeah, I, I practiced law for two years. And again, Betty Betty Murphy said this to me at one point, I was, I was really not happy. Uh, being a Again, the discrimination against women in the law is is legion. But back then, and I th- I think about that. So that would have been the eighties. Yeah. Um, I just remember having judges wink at me, little lady me. You know, do all that stuff during motion practice. That was just ridiculous. And uh, the world of of being a litigator is not uh, one that suits me. It suits mm-hmm. a lot of people, but it didn't suit me at all. So I was litigating. I was doing commercial work, and I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy. So I wanted to give it two years. That was the advice I got from Betty: give it two years. You know, and it, and I'm glad I did because law school for me it it teaches you the rules of the game so you can play, and. In this sense, it was I had two years, so I know what it's like to, you know, be in depositions, do motion practices, write a contract, all that stuff. So at that point, I I, I did have that under my belt. So I came back to Tallahassee, interviewed for a couple of positions, and got a position in the Florida House. Um, At that time, it was Representative Ron Silver. He later became a senator, but he hired me to be in the majority office, um, and I worked with him as legal counsel and later as staff director.
0: Okay. Was that a positive experience?
1: Totally positive. Yeah. Uh, that was a time in the legislature when Democrats and Republicans worked together, where there were common goals, where people really I, – I remember working on prison reform and had – in our office, in the majority office, having Republicans and Democrats sitting around the table hashing out issues. I was there. It wasn't about – I'm sure it always it's love some levels about some personal power, but sure they really wanted to do the right thing yeah. and really wanted to see advancements and and so that was that was wonderful and it was uh from there that uh when Lawton Childs ran for governor that I started to work on policy papers for him related to um Gun uh, gun reforms, especially, mm-hmm. but also criminal justice issues. Because my last uh, work in the legislature was in the criminal justice committee in the House as the staff right. director.
0: Okay, so you're at the House doing that job, liking it, and then you get you get offered a job, or how, how did you end up at the governor's office from there?
1: Yeah, what happened with that is I was volunteering for Lawton Childs, and then when he won,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I was offered a job by the administration. Okay. Yeah.
0: So for I'm sorry for so for people who don't under, who don't know and that would, I would include myself in that group, how is a governor's office organized in terms of consultants, advisors, people who do the research and you know then counsel the governor on certain positions? How does how does all that fit together and what was your role in that?
1: Well, I think uh, there's some standard stuff that I think is still there. So there are general positions like general counsel or uh, press. A press office, sure. lobbyists, etc., and then within that, the governor chooses to have advisors around them that are directly on on point with certain topics. So, Governor Childs had an environmental advisor, criminal justice advisor, etc. So there were all those kinds of. Maybe there were four of us. I okay. think as policy people, so we were the go-to people on on. On whenever that came up, whether it was a constituent issue or a legislative issue or some other kind of issue of the day. After Governor Childs, uh, you know, so I was a policy person and then we did create the state's first task force on domestic and sexual violence. And that was really the biggest thing for me with Governor Childs because of the timing of it. If you think about in the mid 90s, that's when the national, at the federal level, the Violence Against Women Act passed for the first time. Okay. That, and at this, right after that, OJ killed Nicole. And allegedly. Allegedly. (laughs) On the civil side, no question. Right. And there was a national teach in happening on domestic violence. And so prior to. The Simpson situation, mm-hmm. we created a task force in Florida. And that's what I did for the remainder of the, the Child's Administration. And it was big. It was the first time we had one, it really rode helped us ride a national wave on this issue. And uh, we created information reports and things like that, legal reforms, legislative initiatives, programs uh that have been are still in place so mm-hmm. i'm really proud of that and that's so then at the end of the the childs administration i left the childs administration and went right into my own consulting practice that was in 1999 and traveled really the country and part of the world working on domestic and sexual violence issues
0: right and that leads to my question about a trip you took in 2001 that i know had a huge impact on your professional personal life moving forward. So tell us about that trip.
1: Okay, so in 2001, yes, I was invited to be part of a State Department mission to Bangladesh. And this was to do training on domestic violence fatality reviews. We had started those in Florida during Childs. And I was really, it changed my life. That trip changed my life for a lot of reasons. But one of them was we went to a shelter where the people in Dhaka, the capital, they sheltered domestic violence victims, uh, sexual assault victims, and victims of human trafficking. Hmm. And at that shelter, there were the boy, these little boys. They were, you know, six, seven years old. And I'll never forget them because they were rescued back from the women who ran the shelter who were just like – People my age and older grandmothers who would go and and take their get their children who had been kidnapped from Bangladesh into Saudi Arabia in this case as uh, mm-hmm. to be enslaved as camel jockeys that was their forced labor but what they did was Went they to
0: race and bet on
1: yes because okay. the children were young and light and screamed which made the camels run faster that's how. Mm-hmm just horrible. So I'll never forget those kids. i never forget going back to the hotel and saying, I got to do something. Because just just weeks prior, I had been in D.C. and watched a reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act that included the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, which was the first big set of national laws on this. So so then I came back after seeing that. I just said, I have to do something around human trafficking. And uh literally within weeks, I got a call from uh, Terry Coonan at the Human Rights Center here at Florida State, said, hey, Robin, would you like to work with us on human trafficking issues? Mm. And so I said, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that was the first time I did something big in terms of a, a, a project here in the U.S. in Florida on the issue of trafficking.
0: Okay. And you're the consulting firm that you formed that allowed what? What was that? What role did that play? And what kind of clients did you have? And how did all that work?
1: All the work I did uh, as a consultant has been around either violence against women issues or human trafficking, and generally a human rights agenda, if you will. So that included entities like the Human Rights Center at Florida State. It also includes. Uh, uh, national technical assistance projects on the Violence Against Women Act and other implementation in, implementation of other right. laws and programs, and so it's all uh, yeah it's that's that's generally what it is and and my consulting firm is is a one woman show that's me
0: right and you still have it today I do okay um all right we're gonna get to what you're doing now in a minute but I want to hit one other thing first and that is that your career is full of board service honor significant presentations over the last couple decades um your cv was quite lengthy with all the all the places that you have um, all the ways you've contributed to these subjects Um, you've been honored as volunteer of the year at the refuge house here in tallahassee advocate of the year for the florida coalition against domestic violence You've been in Tallahassee Democrats 25 Women You Need to Know back in 2011 and just last year you were named the 2021 Trailblazer for the Oasis Center for Women and Girls. Just curious how um what stands out to you when you think about that body of work and some of the impact you've had in these important areas.
1: I'm immensely proud that of of that. Those are those are such incredible honors that I don't a part of me doesn't understand because i just feel like i'm doing what i'm supposed to be doing you know mm. it just it feels it and and it's so gratifying to be recognized on the one hand on the other hand i i see people around me all the time who should also be recognized if you know what i mean so mm. um it's 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 validating it's affirming it's it's uh it's it's amazing it's really it I, I don't even know how to describe how I feel about it, to be honest with you. I it just it, – it's a very, very um, – it makes me feel connected. It makes me feel like I'm part of our, our world.
0: All right. Now let's get to what your main focus is now. And that is in 2016, you were co-founder and our CEO of the Survive and Thrive Advocacy Center, which is more commonly known as STACK. Um, tell us about that organization, what your mission is, and really the what stack's all about.
1: Stack is about two things. Uh, one is about providing direct aid and support to people who are sex or labor trafficked. And so uh, that's a big, that's a big thing to do if you if you know what I mean, mm-hmm. because trafficking is one of the most traumatic things that could happen to a person. It's a form of absolute, Uh, you know, subjugation, control in both sex and labor situations. And the people who are trafficked are highly traumatized, adults, children, immigrants, U.S. citizens, everybody. So that's one of the things we do is provide direct assistance with the help of a lot of community partners. And then the other thing we do is we do a lot of community education. So we do webinars and presentations and have a bang-up website. I love it. Uh, And just do a lot of work to get the word out.
0: Okay. So I know the term human trafficking gets used a lot, but could you define that for us? Like, tell us what really is human trafficking?
1: Really simply put, human trafficking is the exploitation of one person by another for commercial gain or benefit. So if you think about somebody uh, taking you and forcing you to work or have sex for money or for some other benefit to that that person that is what it is. So when it comes to forced labor, which really forced sex is a form of forced labor as well, but if if somebody is saying you have to do this for me for money or for you to get this this benefit, that is what it is and the person can't leave. So when you have a child, for example, you don't have to show that that child was forced or coerced because a child is a child and doesn't have the free will to either consent to sex or agree to be, uh, uh, you know, work in a, a field or a restaurant right. for, you know, 17 hours a day. Right. Um, on the labor side, that's a, a Florida law protection that isn't there at the federal level. But anyway. Right. Um but if you're an adult and you're forced to do that, you can't leave. You're, you're in a situation where that trafficker has really controlled you to such an extent that you you can't leave the situation. And if you do, you, you know you're going to be facing consequences. You're going to be possibly harmed. Those you love are going to be harmed. So there's a lot of coercion and control that goes on with this.
0: Right. And sometimes people are in that situation because of abduction. Other times, right, they're tricked into it or it comes in and it seems like it's a good thing at first, and then they're in the web and they can't get out, right? So there are different paths to entry into this world.
1: There are, and by far the most common path is a path of, of befriending, building of trust, hmm. coercion, and then payback. I think Hollywood has done us a great disservice when they have movies like Taken hmm. that show people. That's what I think of first. Yeah, right? you think people getting snatched off the street, that whole snatch and grab thing. We, we're trying to do so much education now to tell parents, it's not, don't worry about your kid being pulled off of the sidewalk or parking lot at, you know, at the movies. Think about that trafficker who's coming into your kid's smartphone right or you know online gaming system because that's where the that's where the grooming is starting that's where they're befriending them and building trust and so more often it's a people are trafficked by people they know and they've built relationships with
0: how much does human trafficking impact Tallahassee and Leon County what are our numbers like compared to other
1: places it's really hard to say what the numbers are for a lot of reasons that we need to, you know, maybe have a, <laughs> another a whole pop, other thing on yeah. that, yeah. Um, but here's the thing. Florida's third of the nation. Uh, a lot of people think it doesn't happen in our area because we're not in Miami or Atlanta or, you know, even Jacksonville, but it does. Half of our caseload are labor trafficking victims right now. and And we also have the law structured so that, You can't tell when someone makes an arrest that that's been a trafficking arrest. So what I mean by that is trafficking is a crime of many crimes. So a trafficker can be a money launderer. So if we have 10 convictions for money laundering here, none of them could say human trafficking, but they could be trafficking cases. Mm -hmm. So we have a hard time nailing down exact numbers because they're simply not gathered by any official sources. What we have seen in the past, though, is is with surveys that are done – we think that this is a, a bigger issue than has come out. So, like I said, at this point, you know, during the pandemic, our caseload tripled. We were helping 13 people at one point who were both sex and labor trafficked, some of whom were also victims of domestic violence, for example, or victims of other crimes. Because, again, trafficking is a crime of many crimes.
0: Right. Um is the needle moving are you making progress or are the obviously the dangers are always there and probably increasing how do you feel about what you know what kind of progress you're making
1: we are making progress i can tell for the last 7 years since we've been doing this work that we've had more funding come into our area in terms of federal grants to help with direct victim services and aid we've seen better laws pass we've seen more people getting educated about it and yet I see that it's still a great big mountain to climb, that mm-hmm. there's still so much education to do of, of everybody in the community, really. Um, if somebody who's cleaning your office at, at 11 o'clock at night, that person might be trafficked and you wouldn't even know it. Someone working in the parking lot, someone, you know, cleaning the hotel room down the street. And what we're trying to do now is help people recognize signs and indications so that they can know it might be happening and do something about it.
0: Okay. Well, you're working with Leon County right on an online training program. So tell us about that.
1: Yes. Leon County funded Stack last year to develop something called Stack Pro. Uh, Stackpro.org is the site. It's a free one-hour, little bit more uh, training program for all businesses and workplaces to be able to understand what trafficking is, how they might see it, come to work, essentially, right. and how they can respond, how they can recognize uh, indications, how they can write those down, how they can report them, how they can make sure that someone is not being endangered. Because we're seeing, I, I remember doing a, uh, just helping one of the Leon County Commissioners, Rick Miner, do some research on the area. And I just Googled North Monroe and human trafficking. And something came up on a travel website that says, don't stay at any of these hotels because there's trafficking there. Now, that's something that's affecting the bottom line of everybody in that area, right? So it's smarter for businesses to know what's going on so they can prevent it, stop it, report it. And um, as well, I, as a consumer, you know how it is now. You want to do good with what you're buying and you want to support people who understand what's going on and are helping in the community. So we feel like when businesses can do this training and get recognized, they will also do better on their yeah. bottom lines.
0: And I imagine there's a lot to learn that we're all probably, as business owners, pretty naive to the to what's really happening.
1: Exactly. And and people always tell me, Dave, they always say, what can I do? What can I do? I want to do something. And really it starts with yourself at home. Just be more educated on how to see it. I, I was at a training the other day with Saltra Mitchell, PR. You probably know Heidi Otway. Sure. Yeah. And we did the training. She had a lunch and learn with everybody in the office. And she just at one point said, After you after you see this, you can't unsee it. After you know it, you can't unknow it. And that's what we're hoping for.
0: I'm interested in the impact working in this area has on you personally. Um, You know, it's such a huge problem and you see it up close every day. How do you keep yourself from getting overwhelmed by it all?
1: How do you keep yourself from being... You know, I I learned something a long time ago. I was a volunteer at Refuge House and I worked in the shelter. I worked uh, answering the hotline. I helped uh, survivors there to make dinner and help with their kids and all of that. And what I realized... And this was, gosh, this would be 25 years ago, is that I am such a sponge. I cannot be close to people who are in great pain. Mm. It's really hard because I take it in. And so what I've learned is I work with people who can. So we have a wonderful victim advocate um, who works with us now, and I work with others who are directly working with people. But I know to stay a few steps away and work on policy and do presentations and and, and right now, organizing stuff around stacks. So how I keep saying is I know who I am. You mm-hmm. know, I know that's a, a possibility. And and so I also try to do things that are fun. I make jewelry. I actually have a, a jewelry business that started because some of my work colleagues saw some of my pieces and said, <laughs> I want one.
0: Oh, that's fun. Well, tell us real quick, how can people... Do you have a website or anything? I
1: don't. They... Could, uh, they just reach I out had, to you? Yeah, I had a Facebook page. Actually, I have four pieces at LeMoyne now. Oh, nice. At a show. But um, they could just reach out to me and okay. call me. Okay. And so, what I, kind of jewelry is it? Um, like this, what I'm wearing. Oh, so, pretty. I have uh, <laughs> lava and turquoise and a little silver. So, it's um, beaded jewelry, okay. and I uh, I do that as I, I always like that's it's an my, outlet that's kind of my thing? right brain activity, right? right. It, it, it it taps into that creative side, so I love it. It's okay. turned into something that I just love it. Half of my office is even like a one side, is all of the. The policy work and stack and all the, the consulting work and the other side I built out to have it store all the beads and all <laughs> the books and all the things and yeah. my tools. So uh, so it's kind of emblematic. So that's one thing I do. I, I also am – I'm a reader. I love to read and I love to just get out of um, – and, and it can be hard too because I need to really separate from all of this um, the, you know, the potential pain, the seriousness of, yeah. of what's going on in the world. And I, uh, so I, I like to read all kinds of fiction and, and that. So I'm, a, I'm still a reader. I was, you know, I was always a reader when I was a kid and I still am. So I do that. Um, and also try to spend as much time with, uh, just an amazing set of friends and family.
0: Yeah. Let me ask you about that. Tallahassee is is well known, I think, for its strong volunteer community, nonprofit environment and community and you know, the business community and the nonprofits work well together to, you know, create a, a, a good quality of life for people here. Has that been your experience and the things you've been trying to accomplish, finding people to help you along that along with that?
1: Absolutely. And that is one of the greatest truths with a capital T. Is that help is always near, hmm. and I believe that to my core, for whatever it is, personal or professional, and that has truly played out in just as as you've said with the business community and nonprofits. For us, at the very beginning of of Stack Pro and this business training, um, I did a podcast with Sue Dick at the Tallahassee Chamber. Yeah, I heard that, yeah. And so there they were. Um, same thing with the. Um, Capital City Chamber now working with Katrina Tuggerson as well. So they're there. And we trained recently at the H- Tallahassee Board of Realtors. And so absolutely, I think that's the only way we can do this because we're all in this together. Like and if everybody can't help themselves, then what are you what are we doing here? <laughs> so um so yeah, I, I think it, it has come out. And I think it's really a matter of of just really tapping into the base goodness of, of people and and they'll I think they'll come forward. Right. So
0: I guess you're glad you stayed in Tallahassee.
1: I am. I I you know this I can't decide whether to call it a small big town or a big small town because every time you do something there's no six degrees of separation. None. There is absolutely not the case. And so yeah, you you are connected in such in such terrific ways. I can't imagine picking up and moving and starting out again, you know what I mean? But right. um but it's but it is a wonderful place.
0: Right. So you mentioned your um, friends and family. So, just wanted to touch on your family a little bit. Tell us a little bit about um, about your family
1: now. Sure. Um, well, here in town, uh, my mom is here. She is ninety two, mm-hmm. and she is she's doing great. So, I see her all the time. We've always been very close our whole life. So, so that's just. Uh, you know, difficult challenges as, as she, as she, as we all age, but in particular, you know, just recently. So, so working there has been a a really, um, through a lot of issues and, uh, and had a great day yesterday. She's taught me one day at a time is the total way to go when it comes to uh, life and enjoying what's in front of you, right. right in front of you at this moment. So that's been a really great lesson. Yeah. Um, so I, I live here also with my husband, Dan, and um, all my other siblings, though, are are scattered across the state, but we, at least they're all in the state of Florida, so we have a chance to see each yeah. other.
0: great. All right. Two more questions, and then we're done. Uh, Robin, looking back, what is the one thing or person that changed or altered the trajectory of your life to this point?
1: I would have to say it has been my mother at all these various points. So <laughs> I guess she changed the trajectory when she birthed me, that's, but, that's, but, a but that's, significant that's a big one. I'd yeah. say that's a big one. But um, but she's always been there to um, to guide and support in ways that are just you know again still still happening. Um, and then when I when I think of others, it, you know, I can't I cannot think of one single person because. There have been so many junctures where somebody has said something, done something, made a a comment. I, I, one of the most difficult times of my life, I think I had a light bulb go on in a major way. It was a casual comment from somebody who was cutting my hair. And I just truly believe that there are, you know, if you think of them as angels, if you think of them as any kind of guide or... Whatever it is, it's somebody who's going to be there to say what you need to hear and be open to hearing it. Hmm. So I think of it more as a philosophy of being open because—
0: Can you share what what they said to you?
1: Well, it was actually—I was talking about being in a really, really bad and difficult relationship. And she she looked at me and she said, Honey, that ain't love. (laughs) And I went—
0: yeah, pretty simple, but true. She is true. so
1: right. And yeah, then I, I walked out of there and said, I'm getting out of that relationship. Wow. Honey, that ain't love. That I remember her saying that. And, of course, how many of us have been in relationships when we've known time to leave, but you kind of stick it out a little longer, hoping. Right. Um, so that was it. So, I, you know, there are just times when I, I just think that those messages are around us all the time. And we can tune in. Or we can let our egos take over. Um, But I think if you can get out of your own way and be open, that's the best way to go.
0: Yeah. That is good advice. (laughs) All right. Final question. The podcast is named How I Got Here. And we've talked about how you got to this point in your life. Where do you think here might be for you in the next three to five years?
1: Three to five years. Here might be... Not even in this country. I love France. I would love to go live in France in five years if I could for six months or or travel or just kind of put down roots in a community that is so very different. That's one of the things I want to do As I really want to be in another place. Right. Um,
0: Why France?
1: I think I have several past lives there. (laughs) (laughs) At least one. At least one, maybe. I know, yeah. because I was walking around Paris. I knew where to go. Anyway, that's another story. But um, but I have loved every time I've been there. Same thing with England and London. Um, but I do want to travel. I want to go to Japan and go to the baths. You know, I want to be in other cultures. And I um, I think that, that will be a good chunk of my time. Because I'm 62 now. And I figure when retirement comes, if it ever comes, it's gonna be a quasi-situation. I probably will never stop doing, doing work I find meaningful, but I uh, would like to be doing some of that.
0: Thanks for listening to the show. You can subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Thanks to my amazing staff at Fiore Communications who pick up the slack while I'm working on these podcasts and to Troy Bloom for composing our theme music. You can hear more of Troy's creations on Facebook and Instagram at Troy Bloom Music. To connect with the podcast or suggest a future guest, follow us on social media or email us at podcast at